0: If we can take our existing model, that that thing about assessing people, only offering them training that's actually relevant to them and their needs, that whole process, that whole approach isn't just good for technical training. It should be good for a much wider range of types of training as well. There is a a massive shift going on in what kind of roles even exist in the world is changing and we have this big need of taking people in the middle of their careers, training them in something new. There are estimates that that's gonna affect something like 350 million people across the next 10 years who are gonna find that their job title doesn't exist in the middle of their career. I'm Howell Carver. I'm a co-founder and CEO at skill
1: This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries, who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead. A team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, And today, how Howell Carver created the platform to analyze skill gaps and personalize hands-on learning. All this and more on Code Story. Howell Carver has been writing code since he was nine years old. His first language was C, which is quite a language to start out in. And his first program was a guess the number program using binary search. And of course, with an embedded Easter egg. He's married with two children and parenting has really pushed him to learn how to focus. And he regularly has to put things down to take care of other responsibilities. One of his biggest hobbies is pub quizzes. In fact, he's been on a few TV quiz shows, including Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Howell and his co-founders dreamed about a way to distill down the distinct learning moments for developers, leading them to the point of inception for skills and wisdom. Their passion for this topic led them to build a way to develop developers in an incremental, personalized way. This is the creation story of Skiller Whale.
0: The idea behind Skiller Whale is essentially that... When you're learning something, when you're learning to write code, there are probably points you can, things you can, experiences you can point to in your past where you actually learn something. Most of the time when you're sitting on the job, writing code, you don't really learn anything new. You're just kind of doing the same thing. But then there are these, these moments where someone explains something to you a certain way or shows you a different way of doing something that at least for me, I can point to and say, that was the moment when I learned how to think in the right way about objects versus, you know, having structs and functions separately. How, that was the point where I understood about why an object is a good idea. And that was the point where I understood why I would want to use the interface pattern. And that was the point where I realized that list comprehensions in Python were nicer than writing for loops and creating a new list a lot of the idea of the company was what if we could do a very different style of training that essentially distilled those moments down for you and gave you an opportunity to experience them so we're kind of leading you up to that moment of revelation and then letting you experience it as if it happened on your on the job kind of a simulated experience approach to to learning and that was part of the the kind of influence behind starting the company honestly it's it's partly informed by how I was taught as a student I think I had an amazing university education I know that's quite an unfashionable thing to say nowadays most people find their university very bad at education mine had the standard lecture system but also had these smaller groups where you would sit down with a not with a professor but with like a grad student who would then help you with the problems you've been set and help you understand specifically what you've got wrong and essentially debug your understanding That was one of the influences on the company. And then another was just having been a CTO in a variety of startup companies for the previous, I guess, six or seven years at that point. I had great teams. I just always wanted them to be able to do more. You know, we wanted to adopt this new technology and I needed a way of effectively getting a team to be able to use that technology better. Or I'd have mid-levels on the team who were really capable and hungry to learn, but I didn't have a very effective way to give them the skills of seniors, to make them have this broader understanding. And so all of these things kind of came together in skill a So to to answer, answer the first part of the question, we work with teams of software developers to change what they're capable of. And I think that's a really important definition. What we don't just say is, we train teams of software developers because we're not really interested in just delivering training, unless it's actually gonna result in a new capability. We assess every team first so that we can say, well, you already know about this topic and this topic and this topic, but these people on the team don't know about that topic, which means that when we deliver training, we can just do the topics, like down to the level of a single hour at a time. We modularize to that level, and then we offer your team only the topics, only the one hour segments that they need to learn. And then critically, and while there are slides there is the kind of normal format of learning material it's all delivered with a trainer there whose main job is really to lead you to the exercises which are designed carefully so that you do have that revelatory moment yourself and the trainer really exists to help debug what you've done help you understand the things that you've missed and and to kind of lead a conversation around them so that by the end we've taken you from something in a topic that we know you didn't know before and we've Not just told you about it, but giving you the opportunity to try it and solve proper problems with it in code um, and then helped you with the bits that didn't make sense until they do. So you come out able to do something new in your production code that you couldn't do before.
1: Well, let's jump into the MVP then. So tell me about that first product you built. How long did it take you to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life?
0: When I was starting out as a CTO after my first company, um, I did a lot of consulting for people who were at the really early stages with their company, had an idea and couldn't work out how to, how, how to sort of start with it. And almost all of them had this idea of sort of partially formed build that, you know, was maybe like three months of work to build, which they referred to as the MVP. And that's actually convinced me that I'm not, I'm not sure if the, the way that people talk about MVPs now has changed so much from the original intention that i'm not sure if it's as useful a concept so the the way that we started as a company was i had this this idea of how we could deliver better training so what i did was write write out what would effectively be the slides now in our product and i printed out this set of slides that must have been about 7 printed pages for each session and i cut them up into strips where there was kind of dividing line between one topic and the next and then i would sit around a table with the people we were training and i was sliding the bits of paper across the table to them as they each as they progressed at their different paces through the sessions material and then i'd go and stand behind them and sort of circle circulate around the table checking what they were done what they'd done over their shoulder and i suppose that's probably the most minimal thing that i did that people were paying for so I would describe that as the minimum viable product. But I think when people use that phrase, what they really mean is, when did you first have a bit of technology that was delivering everything, that that sort of felt feature complete? And that was probably about a year, a year after we had our first paying customers. You
1: know, both of those make sense for kind of early concept and then something that people can essentially click around on. But even, I'd say in both of those too, you have to make certain decisions and trade-offs about you know, what you're going to choose to do first, whether whether it's feature cut, technical debt you take on, or anything like that. So tell me about some of those decisions and trade-offs that you had to make and how you coped with them. The
0: trade-off felt like a clear one between the ease of iteration and the level of manual effort, because the ease of iteration when what you're doing is printing out, like I think I wrote it all up as a GitHub gist, when you're printing out a nicely formatted markdown file, It's super easy one week to the next to just rip up the format of that and completely rethink it or go through it all and just change the text content. And so I suppose that was the main consideration and it felt, it didn't feel like a hard decision to make. And I think that's partly because I've just worked in too many companies where decisions like that get taken, decisions like the format or how we're going to deliver this training or what this training, what the value is for the customer get assumed and then rewritten later on. We have as a company tended to only ever write something into code when we're like 95 percent certain it's the right way to do something technical debt is is a different question for us at least we've definitely had to park a a lot of that kind of consideration where you're thinking i know this is this is a very short-term solution so let's just stick it to one side for now and cope with what we've got i think possibly the only the only early decision that we took that's kind of helped with that is the decision to build into multiple apps early on. Even though we have a very small surface area of product, we have four separate applications that run it. That that was enabled by the fact that I quite like configuring Terraform projects and building Duffin AWS and getting it all to work. But that has helped to limit the amount of technical debt or at least how bad the technical debt feels because it, it forces you to have APIs between parts of your application and so you know the reach of that spaghetti code or that poorly named class or that badly structured concept the reach of that is limited because at some point one of the other apps has to hit an API rather than go and touch that object directly
1: okay so from that point how did you sort of progress the product and mature it and and really the context of that question is how do you build your roadmap and how do you decide, okay, this is the next most important thing to build in Skiller. Will? I
0: have to divide the answer into two parts because we have the product itself and then we have the curriculum. Because we're training technical teams, we're training teams of software developers, you know, we have a a deeply technical curriculum that involves writing code. Like when we're teaching Golang, we have to not just have people in in the company learning Golang and able to train in Golang, but we also have to write small Golang projects that people are going to work on when they're learning. And the way we prioritize curriculum is generally very market-driven. It's driven by the customers that we already have and what they need, and then new customers that come along and and big opportunities there. So we had a couple of customers at the same time that wanted Golang because they've taken the longer-term decision to rebuild everything they do. We had suddenly this this wealth of customers who wanted Golang training, which justified us building an entirely new curriculum in it, um, which then you know pushes other things to the back of the line. But it's it's kind of easy for us to be commercially driven there. In terms of how we work with the with the product and the delivery side of it, effectively the, the platform that we train on. That's really been about experimenting without tech and then codifying what works. It was about a year before what what we had felt like a fully featured platform. And to start with, once we had sort of solidified how the training was gonna work, the first step of the platform was just having a really simple site where people could log in by putting in a. A code that we'd supply at the session so there was no like identity management there was no authentication as such you just turned up to the session and i said your code is abc123 and then you put that in enter a name and, and you're in the session and that was just doing the effectively doing the same thing i was doing sliding the pieces of paper across the table so that was the kind of first bit that we productized and then it was a sort of slowly growing process after that. So rather than going around and standing behind people, we built a small script that they would run, which would push their changes to our backend. A kind of key part of what we do is we, we're training people who are already developers, often who've got like 15 years of experience. They already know what editor they like to use. They already know how to use their command line. They don't want to use some web ID that we've, we've put together that they don't like as much as their normal editor. So we want to, them to be able to work on stuff in the training session in their normal environment. Um, but for our trainers still to be able to see it. And so we built the script that you can run on any machine with any editor that you use that will then push changes you're making to our backend so the trainer can see them. Most of our iteration was really about the commercial model and about the way that we talked about training even and how we kind of escaped the horrible reputation that training has that I think a lot of training deserves, honestly. After that, I think there was a real defining moment where I went to this company's office to deliver a one-off training session it was just going to be a, a taster for them and to see if they wanted more so we were doing it for free and I turned up and uh, they said oh gosh we're so sorry we forgot that you're coming and we would have told you not to because two of our team have already gone back home for Christmas and one of them's gone to Manchester and one of them's gone to Pakistan and in fact I think one of them was just at home in London and hadn't bothered to come in that day so I said well like don't worry about it let's get everyone on a on a Google Meet call, and then we can run the session on the website and we'll see we'll see if we can make it work. And it was at the end of that when they said, "We think we've had just as good an experience as if we'd been there in person. That was when we put the video conferencing into our platform itself, and that was just before Christmas memorably, because that was where they'd, they'd all gone home. And that was the point where I think we became really feature complete. And now I think the way that we prioritize features is really driven by internal need. For us our, a lot of the usage is by our by our trainers and by our internal team because what we do is deliver live training. Our customers actually only interact only interact with our product for you know maybe a few hours a week and I like to think they're very valuable hours but it's still not a huge amount of time whereas our trainers might be doing two four hours of training every day and so a lot of the work that we're prioritizing is about how do we make the trainers be as effective as possible how do we how do we help the trainer to spot that this person is really stuck and help them as soon as possible
1: i love how you went about that i love how the feedback was this felt just as good as if we were in the office with you or in the session in person with you that's that's really cool and so good to have
0: that validation before you put in the energy into building something right because building is is slow doing feature discovery by writing code is is slow and painful so if there's any other way to to avoid that and to find out what is going to work so that by the time you actually come to build it you know that what you're doing is going to work Uh, it makes it much more fun to write on the code as well much more fun to kind of hack things together because you know why you're doing something there's a very strong sense of purpose it's not because we speculatively think this is probably a good idea it's because well, in this case, it was because it meant I, I could do all my sessions from home and spend more time with my young son, rather than having to go to everyone's office.
1: Well, let's switch to team. So how did you go about building your team? And what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you?
0: I should say that we're still quite a small team. So we are, we're 11 people today. We've got four or five active roles open. The first members of the team to be added were really my co-founders, Dave and Hayley. And for them, it was was an easy choice really because they were people that I've worked with before and who I'd always thought would be good to co-found a business with. And I think that comes from having quite a similar approach I think, I think one of the determining factors in any relationship is how you are with each other when you're either disagreeing or when things are going really badly. You know, some people get very upset and angry and loud and emotional and some people will get kind of rude to each other. And I suspect those people like similar people too. Like I think the people who get very emotional probably want to be around other emotional people to kind of feel like they're validated and agree. And I suspect the people who get rude with each other maybe feel... Feel something similar they want people who take the problem as seriously enough to get rude as they do i think with with Haley and dave i think we had we have very productive disagreements and i think for me that's kind of the hallmark of a very good working relationship we do disagree and you know we sort of stand up to each other and then we kind of thresh it out and we talk about why each person thinks each their idea is a good one and what that means and actually which of those motivations is the right one overall and how do we find the right way to kind of go forward what what decision do we take as a group now that we now we understand where each person's coming from the fact that those are so healthy is a large part of why i I think they're great people to for me to run a company with i suppose the other thing is thinking about skills and complementarity because we're a very technical company right most of our employees are technical and the people that we look for are not just people with technical skills but who are very very good at learning new things so there's a level of kind of smarts and, and cognitive cognitive ability the, the ability to really pick things up fast and internalise them and, and really grok things that are really important to what we do and recognising that in other people is for me a really good barometer for how, for how much I'll enjoy working with them because um, I I personally love those working relationships where you say something once, and the other person, the next thing the the other person says, is already taking into account what you've said. Like they've heard you, they've understood it, they've internalized it. It's shifted how they think about the world, and now they're saying, "Okay, so we should do this." That's a really productive way of of working for me. We wanted to be very explicit about our culture, and I think that's because we all value culture very highly those soft qualities that we like in each other, that we wanted to make sure that the company had and that our hires had. <clears throat> and the only way you can really do that fairly is by being explicit about them, I think. And so for us, we we defined our culture as valuing highly openness. You're happy to be challenged on decisions and you're happy to explain why you made them. Um, rationality, that's the idea that if you tell someone why you made a decision, it should make sense. Creativity—I um, think a large part of what we what we do is creative, and we we think what we're doing is something of a reinvention of a slightly stagnant industry. And autonomy, because we are all allergic to micromanagement, and we don't want to be micromanagers, and we don't want to and um, to be micromanaged ourselves. Firstly, worth pointing out, those values make a nice acronym, which is ORCA. And um, ORCA is another name for killer whale. We all like bad puns. Makes them easy to remember as well. Um, but it also lets us be really explicit. If, if we're um, interviewing someone and they, um, they you know, express a technical opinion very strongly, but don't have any, any kind of way to back it up, we might question whether they're a good fit for a culture that favours rationality, for example.
1: Well, let's flip to the scalability then. So did you build this to scale efficiently from day one? Either you know, that first you know, clickable product or you know, wherever you want to call the day one for the product, or are you fighting this as you grow and gain traction?
0: I think somewhere in between. So in the very early days of the company, we had lots of conversations about how you scale human-driven training. There are different kinds of learning. There's there's knowledge and there's skills and there's wisdom. And essentially knowledge is facts, it's data, it's things that you know. Skills are things that you know how to do, abilities that you have. And then wisdom is about decision-making, contextual judgment, doing the right thing given your current situation or context. You can gain knowledge passively. You can gain knowledge by reading books, by watching YouTube videos, by listening to talks, I don't think you can gain skills that way. I think to gain a skill, you need to have trial and error with feedback. You need the attempt of something, the ability to make mistakes, and then for someone to tell you how to make fewer mistakes next time around. And then wisdom is really about exercising skills repeatedly in different contexts and realizing this thing that I did that time in that place isn't a good idea now because this this situation is different and so now I should be taking a different approach. And we wanted to do training that was specifically about skills and wisdom, um, hence the name of the company, Skiller Whale, came out of that that same conversation. From the very early days, we realised that everything we did, all of our training, was going to have to be human-driven if we wanted people to come out of it with skills. And so we had lots of early conversations about how we were going to scale, not in technical terms, but in just logistic terms. How do how do you deliver training to a hundred people at the same time? How do you get the humans that you need to deliver that training in place? From a technical side, a lot of what we do is relatively easy to scale. In the worst case, it's just more servers. You know, we're not we're not hitting any limits anytime soon. The ways that we need to scale are about the humans that lead training. Um, and we, we had a good model to copy there. So we thought about, again, going back to my university education, how you have the professor who writes the course and writes the problems. But then the actual learning happens when you sit down with the postgrad student who is maybe more passionate about the subject and um, a bit less, maybe less knowledgeable than the professor, but still understands it well enough to help you understand it better. And that's our model for finding trainers. We don't need the person who wrote the programming language, although their help is useful in writing the curriculum, but we do look for people who are passionate about the programming language and who work in it every day, and we make them our trainers.
1: Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? L-
0: like everyone else, we are, we are greedy for feedback from our users and our customers. We can't get enough of it. We consistently here i had solved this problem last week and i did it a rubbish way and now i'm going to go and i didn't know this better way existed now i'm going to go and rewrite it or we're about to start on this long-term project and we're going to really need all these things and we're so glad that we had this session today before we did that so that we were we were sort of starting in the right way we we measure after every session the um the school that our learners are giving us and that went up from 4.76 out of 5 to 4.81 out of 5 in the last month. I don't give I don't think most people give five out of five to to many things in in their lives. Um and to get such consistently good feedback makes me makes me feel proud. I think it that cause that's the sign of the whole company working, right? That's when people really like what we're doing and they talk about it having an impact on their work, that's the thing that makes me think we've We've built something
1: that works here. Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. The problem with
0: being in fundraising mode for so long is you you spend so much time talking about the positive that you forget all of your mistakes. We've made mistakes, but generally we're small enough that we have a a good enough relationship with our customers that we can reach out and talk to them directly. So we mess up and then we can just message the, the customer on Slack and say, do you have five minutes for a call and own up to it and work out what we can do to, to make things right.
1: So what does the future look like for Skillerwell, the product, and for your team?
0: We are intending to grow to about 30 people across the next 18 months. Um, and that's because we, we think we can scale what we're doing and keep it working as well as it is for our customers. We'll be able to cover a much larger range of technology that we, we train in. Um, and then the plan after that is to sort of take a step back from just training in hard technology. So right now, when we run a training session, it's on a specific programming language and, or a specific framework like React or something. What I think we will start to do is move slightly more abstract. So, in the next 6 months maybe we'll start training in architecture. How do you how do you architect a, an application? How do you architect a group of applications all running together in in the cloud? And then I'd like us to take another step back from that and start thinking about maybe soft skills and training engineering teams in in the kind of soft interpersonal skills, time management skills, people management skills. And I think if we can take our existing model, that that thing about assessing people, only offering them training that's actually relevant to them and their needs and then having this instructor led approach that that fits around their work and that's a kind of key part of what we do is our sessions are typically an hour or 90 minutes long which means they're not this massive productivity drain. And I actually think that whole process, that whole approach isn't just good for technical training. It should be good for a much wider range of types of training as well. So I my hope is that we find that we can do that same form of training for soft skills. And then really the, the plan is to go much broader after that, to then offer the same kind of training so that we're training your sales team to be better at sales and to training your marketing team to be better at marketing um, and everything else. Because ultimately the, there is a, a massive shift going on in the world of work and in what individual, what what kind of roles even exist in the world is changing at speed and we have this big need of taking people in the middle of their careers, training them in something new. There are estimates that that's going to affect something like 350 million people across the next ten years who are going to find that their job title doesn't exist in the middle of their career. And we globally need a good solution to that problem. And I think if we can take our form of training that's we've proven is really effective in training programming languages and make it apply more broadly, then I hope that we can be a solution to that problem.
1: Well, Hal, let's switch to you. Who influences the way that you work? I'm mean, a CEO, a CTO, an architect, really any person you look up to and why.
0: I've not really been one for role models generally. I've certainly had a large number of people who have changed how I think in a way, who have had an influence on me and who have sort of pushed me in a, in a different direction so I, I can think of people who you know changed how I think about communication with stakeholders and changed how I think about planning or who changed how I think about the interaction between product and engineering or who changed how I think in terms of managing technical debt or, or all of those things really I mean I do think my co-founders Dave and Haley, actually I gosh I'm praising them again I do think that they're very good at holding me to account and questioning me and sort of encouraging, encouraging me to fix the things that I'm not doing well. So I don't, I don't know that I'd say I'm kind of like actively treating them as role models, but they are having a similar effect to what a role model would do. Um, and to reiterate, they are not available for hire.
1: Well, er, we talked about a mistake, right? But a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach?
0: So I, I would love it if if I had been faster to get the video conferencing built into the platform and start being fully remote sooner because there was a point in the middle of the company where I was losing I was losing entire days to two training sessions because I'd travel to the first one in person, deliver the training session, travel to the second one, deliver the training session in person, and then come home, and that was, that was a full day. It was exhausting and I would you know, I'd carry my laptop with me and do ten minutes here and there of writing and code or whatever on the tube or on a bus. I think the company would have got further if I'd been able to get to this fully remote point sooner. The problem is, I'm saying that and I'm thinking, but could we have, would we have would we have got to the wrong kind of version of what it needs to be and ended up spending more time iterating on the fully remote version? I'm not totally sure of the, the answer to that, but certainly that that strikes me as the thing that would have meant more growth for the company, more growth sooner.
1: Well, last question. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit?
0: Forget the fact that you've built the thing. Um, talk... You know, if if you're just getting excited to show it to the world, that makes me wonder whether you've had enough conversations with people first. So go and talk to your customers. Take the thing you've built, which might be amazing, but let's forget about that for now. Put it put it to one side, put it in a box, go and talk to at least ten people who might be your customer, and really dig into whatever problem that your your thing is hopefully solving. Imagine your thing didn't exist. Go and talk to them. And, and just understand their problem. Don't solutionize, just really dig into the problem, how they've experienced it in the past, how much, how much it costs them, what, what other things that they've tried to solve this problem before. And when you've had 10 of those conversations, go and have eleven to f- conversations 11 to 15 and see if you can predict what those people are gonna say. And if not, maybe go and have conversations up to 30 or something. And at that point, you may well now have a really good understanding of what the, the thing is, what what the problem is that you're trying to solve. Now go back and look at the thing that you've built and see if it is going to solve that problem. Um, and if you're still convinced that it is, go back to those one to 30 conversations that you've had um, and sell it to them. Don't show it to me on a plane, because if I'm not your customer, my feedback is useless to you (laughs)
1: that's
0: great advice
1: well thank you for being on the show today thank you for telling the creation story of skiller whale
0: thank you so much for having me it's been a real pleasure
1: and this concludes another chapter of code story code story is hosted and produced by noah laphart be sure to subscribe on apple Podcasts, spotify or the podcasting app of your choice support the show on patreon.com/codestory for just 5 to 10 bucks a month and when you get a chance leave us a review both things help us out tremendously and thanks again for listening